This is Redress and Lo-Fi, a Japanese-American podcast for all Americans. I'm your host, David Moria. Have you ever heard of the term grassroots? What is a grassroots campaign? A grassroots movement is one which uses the people or community as the basis for a political or economic movement. Grassroots movements and organizations use collective action from the local level to affect the change at the local, regional, national, or international level. What's an example? The biggest one that I know is Bernie Sanders. When he ran for president in 2016, he ran with the idea that his campaign is a grassroots army of volunteers and small donors. This means he's working from the ground up to make change. Bernie Sanders stated that he would run an issue-oriented and positive campaign, focusing his efforts on getting corporate money out of politics, raising taxes on the wealthy, guaranteeing tuition-free higher education, incorporating a single-payer healthcare system, fighting against climate change, and other key issues. Those were his campaign promises. And the biggest is getting the corporate money out of politics. When there's no corporate money, it means that the corporations cannot control the campaign. His campaign called all the local people across the country to mobilize and engage as many citizens as they can into the political effort for his campaign. California, Vermont, Wisconsin, he gets the people around to volunteer so that they don't have to get money out of corporations. Otherwise, they're just being paid to do something. Have you ever heard the phrase, follow the money? You want to know who is paying for what you're voting on and who is making the decisions in your town, city, state, election, or presidency, Bernie Sanders was able to gain a lot of money for his Feel the Burn campaign. And the campaign relied on volunteers and donations rather than large corporations and professional staff. You can build a grassroots movement yourself. For example, if you wanted to feed those who are living on the streets, you're going to ask around to see who can help you, who can volunteer with you, who can donate food, salads, pizza, masks, hand sanitizers, or do you fundraise the money so that you can pay for that? I helped a friend serve pizza on Skid Row in Los Angeles. The organization found the pizza, the masks, the hand sanitizers, and the water to give out to the people that day. It felt really good, and we made a difference in those people's lives. That's grassroots. We all came together and did something. What is an opposite of grassroots movement? is something like Prop 22. Prop 22 in California is a proposition on the 2020 ballot that says all rideshare drivers by Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash will become independent contractors, which they say will give them the flexible hours and some extra benefits. But when you look at who's funding Yes on 22, it's paid for by Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. They are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for this proposition to pass in California. You have to question, why are they putting that money into the campaign? Are they putting money into the campaign to help their employees? Or are they helping themselves? See, the drivers don't necessarily want 22, because if 22 passes, it can prevent them from collective bargaining and protesting. It also does not guarantee them minimum wage or sick leave. Prop 22 is a top-down method where corporations are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get a law passed that can potentially harm their employees 
but give themselves more money. That is not a grassroots organization. That is corporate sponsorship. So why are we talking about this today? Because redress and reparations in the 1980s started as a grassroots movement for the Japanese American people. They came together to stand up to the government to make them apologize and pay out reparations for their wrongful incarceration during the war. And the first step to a grassroots movement is to come together and talk about the issue. Usually that's in a form of a town hall. It means people come together to voice their concerns, to talk about how they can organize and work together to propose the next step. In today's podcast, we're gonna to listen to a town hall that was recorded in 1983, where many people came together and shared their experience about what happened to them and what happened to their families. A small handful of the people you will hear today are not Japanese American, and some of them are hearing this for the first time. Why is a town hall important? Because if we don't speak out and we don't listen to each other, we are staying silent and taking the side of the oppressor. It is vital for us to talk about what is happening to us, our families, and what we plan to do to resolve these issues. It is equally important to listen to those who are voicing their concerns. If we don't listen, their voices are falling into silence. Today's podcast episode is a little different than most because we're gonna hear from multiple people in short spurts. I don't know many of these people's names because they were not mentioned or written down. And that's how town halls can work. You don't have to know everybody's name. You just need to listen to their stories. And this is a place to ask questions. Everybody's invited to be in a town hall. And if you have a chance to go to a town hall in your city, I encourage you to do so. These stories matter. Our stories matter. And if we just take one to two brave moments in our lives, we can start a movement. We can change lives forever. When you start to make a change in your city, that has an expanding ripple effect into what this United States can be. The phrase we say is, act local, think global. And before we jump into today's podcast, I do want to preface a few terminologies that you may come across. Because this is a Japanese American podcast, we are going to hear some words that are often used in Japanese American communities. Let's start off with a simple lesson. One, two, three. Ich ni san. Ich ni san. One, two, three. Ich, one, ni, two, san. Three. Easy. You may hear the term ise. That's first generation Japanese American. Again, that's ise. The nise is second generation Japanese American. And sansei, that is third generation Japanese American. Ich, ni, san. Ise, nise, sansei. So in this town hall, you may hear any of these terms because at this point, it's been 40 years since World War II. Many of the Issei who were there are very elderly and or have passed away at this moment. Luckily today, we're gonna to hear from a few sansei. These phrases were very common words in the Japanese American and the Caucasian American community during World War II, but that slowly pittered out when the Japanese were put into the camps. It's very sad that the language deteriorated over time. So again, we have the Issei, the Nisei, and the Sansei. Now the Sansei were generally not in the camps. My grandmother is a Sansei, and she was in the camps, but she was very young in the camps. So she remembers a few things, but not everything. So with that being said, we're gonna get right into today's podcast. Thank you again for listening, and I'll be back to reflect with you. Before we move to the next panel, I think Angelina, you had a question or a comment to make? I know.
notice that you do not feel ashamed because you were abused and that is important. And I wonder how do you move the Japanese community not to lose pride and to come forward, not to be afraid to talk the abuses they went through. That is a reaction when we belong to any group that is abused. We try to hide it. We try to say they didn't let me buy property. We want to join the majority that have freedom. And we don't want people to know that we did not have it. Is anything done, especially with the young generation, so they don't lose and do not forget, but do not forget trying to bring pride to the ancestry. Is anything being done that you are aware of? If there's something that we are not lacking in, is pride. If there's something that we do not lack in, it is pride in our heritage. There's a, there's a, maybe not as much here in Chicago, but on the West Coast, I think the third generation is very active. And I think in many instances, they were the ones who pushed it more. And with the Nisei's were a little bit more passive. So I think they're providing a lot of the thrust forward, self-assertion, pride, and dignity. Our parents, you know, instilled in us the Yamato we are now speaking now. Yes. I just like to thank all of them for sharing these very touching things. Thank you. Thank you very much. Aware of it. Could I know. You, could you identify yourself? I'm a good friend of Maurice. Oh, oh, I see. All right. But I know what it took. I know, no. I, I can truly appreciate what you're going through, and I just, my heart is open to you. Thank you for sharing it. This is, I think maybe I was reading Roy Wilkins' uh, column recently, some of his statements about the black and how there was a period of emotionalism for blacks, but now they need to move to become educated and develop skills. And I think we we have underscored that part. Right over, that is the the education, development of skills and achievement uh, and so forth. But perhaps the time now is for the Japanese population to be more in touch with who they are inside, to be more expressive, to be more assertive. And I think that's the pain that many of us have, that is that uh, we were passive, so passive, when such uh, terrible things were being done to us. But keep in mind that we were very young at the time, and I don't think that we should be expected to be so politically wise. Okay, thank you. All right, then the next person I'd like to uh, turn to is George Morisato. Okay. Thank you, Doctor. It's very hard to follow the three panelists that preceded me, and especially Mary, very emotional statements. But when I was listening to uh, Sam's description of the toilets in Through the Lake, there was about 150 toilets, as far as I can remember, wide open. And one uh, Thanksgiving day, we were fed gratefully turkey. That night, Somewhere along the line, the gizzard was bad. We had a whole block on a diarrhea case. The more and more people fainting outside of the toilets. And if you can imagine what happened within 150 toilets, everybody was making a dash for them. It's funny and yet it was tragic. I think the background has been set. And I think that we know a lot of ourselves and for the people that's listening. But I have a very emotional story to tell and if I hesitate please bear with me. When we were in camp in Two Lake, the time when it came to a point where we would have to decide whether we would have to 
sign a allegiance to the United States. My father called us, if you can remember, when we were young, our father used to be the pillar of the family. They made all the decisions, as far as my family was concerned anyway, he made all the decisions, he gave us food, gave us pleasures of all different types, he was the one that supplied it. The time came when he said, uh, I had a brother, older brother, two of you would have to make up your mind as to what we are going to do. I asked my brother, I said, what are we going to do? And he says, no way. I am not going to tell you what to do. Just in case I make a mistake, you are going to blame me all your life. These are hard times because a lot of people were against the United States government. People were for the Japanese government that we didn't even know. And yet, they were very angry, which I can appreciate. The time came where my father said, you two are going to have to make up your mind because I'm not going to have to make, make up my mind for you. Now. I'm 17 years old and never made a decision in my life as far as the family decisions were concerned. And my brother asked me, he says, within the next three days, we're going to have to make up our minds. So after three days, my brother said, George, have you made up your mind? I said, yeah. And he said, all right, now is the time to go see dad. Went to see dad and he said, have you made up your mind? He said, yes. And I told my brother, you go ahead first. He said, no. The only thing, the best thing to do, fair thing to do is let's write down what we decided and give it to father a piece of paper. Of course, we know that my father couldn't speak English and read English, but the idea was the fact that it would be open at the same time and decision would be made. Both would be uh, open at the same time. We found out both of us made the same decision. I was made a decision to put myself into the position to be drafted or to be enlisted in the army. And my brother said, you made your bed. And at this point, my father said, all he said was, hmm. And I did not know whether he meant yes, no, maybe. Was I going against him? I was not quite sure. And boy, uh, I'm telling you, that was real bad because he never gave me any kind of indication whether I was going against him or not. Uh, subsequently, I moved to Roar and my brother went in the army, I went in the army. When I got into the army, I met a man I would call Sumio. He seemed to be in the same country as I was because he didn't know whether his father approved of him going into the army or not. We trained together, we had passes together, and we had dinners together. And in fact, his last name was close to mine, so we even slept in the same hut. We went overseas, joined the 142nd. While we were in the battlefield, this Sumio, I, I had to digress here because he always talked about his family, his father, his brothers and sisters, he never talked about his mother, and I didn't know whether he had a mother or not. All through the time that I knew him, he never talked about his mother. When we were in combat, both of us got stuck behind a rock, and the German machine gun was hitting the rock, and we said, we better get the hell out of here. But we didn't know how to get that way because of the fact that we were on the crossfire and we didn't see any of our buddies around. So Sumio said, I'm going to get out. So he took off and ran two steps when he got shot in the chest. I consider him a very good friend of mine. And I pulled him back behind the rock and he asked me, George, please, you go back. Make sure that the Issei people and the Japanese community can walk up walk with their heads up high. We are dying for it here. 
I said, you're not dying, so you'll be careful. I said, we'll get you out of here. He says, no, George, I want to make sure. Promise me that you'll go see my parents. I said, do you have a mother? He didn't answer me. But he talked about his father and his brother. But then last five minutes before he died, he told me a lot of things about the camp. And he wanted to make sure. Again, he made me promise four times within that five minutes to make sure that I would come back and give the message to the Japanese community. Make sure that they are proud to be Japanese or Japanese American and to be in this country. Right before he died, he hollered, Okasan, that was mother. First time he ever talked about mother. Needless to say, I got back. And all this time, I have no idea what my father was thinking. When I got back, I took two buses, one car, a truck to get back to where my parents were. The truck, the last leg, and before I got on the truck, I called, I was able to get a hold of my father on the cafeteria in Jersey. Dad, I said, I'm coming home. He said, okay. Now, in his own way to let me know that I did not make a mistake, when I got off that truck, he was waving an American flag. I understand it. How much is this going to the outside? I am like the sanity that yoga is. I demand attention. But what I suffered, I don't want in this room alone. I want it out there. It's my concern too. I worked for the Chicago Tribune for 17 years in the composing room. I've known these guys for 17 years. They didn't know that I was in camp till last year. Here we're working in the, one of the greatest newspapers they call it. How would it be my fault? I myself, I'm going to tell every Caucasian, hey, I was put into camp. Why not? I have told them. When did you tell them? Well, a lot of us didn't, and now we're beginning to. I think that's the, now we right. some Well, that's when I began yeah. to tell them. And when I began to tell them, right in the paper says, we're asking you for 25 grand. They said, oh, now it's money. Now it's money. Hey, 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 let's get off of it. No, don't rock the boat. Do you serve the American Army? What? They didn't even know what the 442nd looked like until it was shown this late. We have to learn to express ourselves, not in our own group, because I don't believe in it. We have to learn to express it on the outside. We can't talk to the bigots because it's too late. Because you're gonna, if you talk to the bigots, you're gonna run into a wall, and it's not gonna have any. You gotta learn to bring it to the out, keep it bringing it on to the outside. Like any propaganda, it's gonna be constantly hit until they begin to realize. We say media, quiet, and say, and as if you're apologizing that you're an American Japanese, because I'm damn proud to be an American Japanese, and I'll fight for my right to tell the American people I am proud that I fought for this country. But if you call me a Jap, I'll tell you a lousy mouth right off your lips, and it's happened. I've been into plenty of trouble. Dr. Mori knows. Other people know. You went jail again? We have to learn to speak up for our rights. I don't care who it is. Be it black, yellow, but you bring it out to everybody else. You've got to learn to talk all your friends. Who are your friends? They're Caucasian friends. They're important. Because once you get through them, you're in. 
I think one of the biggest disappointments here today is that I don't see more white Americans right. here. You got to learn. Don't, we have one bad trouble. We always stay, Japanese, like you say, like clannish. You go to California. We are forced to be clannish. You go to California. We're to keep a low profile, to keep out of trouble. Don't rock the boat. We've got to learn. We also had many Nisei withdrew when we asked them to help with this program. Uh, that's a very painful thing to see. But I, I just order. hope that this will go mainly to the outsiders who begin to realize what is going on. The only thing good that I got out of camp was a diploma from the Department of Interior, Indian Affairs, so I can con myself and fish and shoot, and that's about all I got out of it. Out of my all my years in camp. There's one uh, one uh, personal experience I'd like to sort of tell you about to underscore what you're saying. That is, I have been in the news in many various uh, papers about my personal experiences. And it's very interesting to see the responses to it. One person said, I saw your picture in the paper. Another person, that was interesting. Uh, and those, by and large, those are the responses. And that's what I meant by the, the ominous sense there, that there's a silence there that, that is uh, not healthy. I just wanted to say something that I found shocking. Mary's been telling me for the last year about this, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't comprehend that this happened, that you people have suffered, and I didn't know anything about it. So I went to libraries. I'm a prolific reader, and I would go to libraries, and I would go to reference works, and I couldn't find anything on it. One or two little picture books, and I said, where is history? Besides all the hurt that's going on, a major part of history is missing from the United States. I am ashamed to say that I am a citizen. I'm ashamed. You're proud to say you're citizens, and I am ashamed to say it. But what has happened? I just wish there were some way that I could repay personally. If this monetary repay is nothing, the anguish, the pain that you've gone through can never be repaid, never. There has to be history rewritten. It has to go further and, and, and discussed. I'm so ashamed, and I just wish I could do more. But... I appreciate your statement very much. I have never heard, first time I've heard a non-Japanese say what you did just now. This last statement was from a white woman who discovered the Japanese-American incarceration from a friend who had told her about her experience. She came out to listen to the Japanese-American community fight for their reparations. That doesn't happen very often. You hear a white woman coming out to help and listen to the people of color and to really understand it, that's so powerful. When the moderator said, this is the first time I've ever heard a Hakujin or a white woman say that, that, that made me feel something because I never hear that, I never hear such passion and a white woman talk about how mad she is about her country what the country did to our people so surprising and i really wanted everybody to hear this because wow and she points out that when she looked for information about this she couldn't find any and that's scary to me it's scary to think there was nothing 40 years later about the japanese american incarceration they weren't teaching in the schools they weren't writing it in the books and they weren't studying it America was trying to hide something they did to their own citizens, and that still happens today. There is so much history that's been lost and unwritten because the government doesn't want you to know. If you knew the truth, 
you would not trust the government. So many people do not know about this history because it's not being taught in their schools. And when they aren't taught about it, it's very glossed over. I remember when I was in high school, I was only taught maybe a paragraph or two about the Japanese Americans. I may have seen one photo and that was it. And they said it happened, the Japanese were fine, and it was all over. That's it. There's so much of this history that I've learned since then and is not ideal, as the textbooks might tell you. And when President Trump calls for this nationalist 1776 project to promote American glory and discredit any anti-bias training and to ignore critical race theory, he is trying to erase more than just history to think that by teaching race, it is racist to teach about race. I don't understand. We only live in one human race, but whiteness is a social construct that is developed by the white people to make them feel better over any person of color. We need to teach this fact of life. We have to understand that race is a real thing. Every day, people of color are judged by the color of their skin, whether it be a life-threatening event or just plain, you're smarter, you're dumber. It is critical that we learn our history because if we never knew about slavery, the Trail of Tears, Manifest Destiny, or the Japanese American incarceration, and so many of the other injustices in our country, and how it affects the people of color, you would only think America has only ever been on the right side of history. If you are a person of color, your culture has at one point been demonized and disenfranchised. As a Japanese American myself, I did not know about this history very well, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I understand how important it was for me to understand my history. It changed my life forever. We need to educate ourselves because the government is not going to help us understand what they did wrong. But it is important for us to understand what wrongs we've done in the past so that we can never make them again in the future. President Trump has already said that he wouldn't know if he would have done the same thing to the Japanese Americans if he were in that position in World War II. And that's scary because we're on the precipice of war with any other country. And if something happened, it could happen again. Unfortunately, they're happening at our southern border right now. Mexican people are crossing our borders and he's putting them into camps. Now, these weren't started by President Trump, but it's still not good. We often say that these things should never happen again, but they're happening. We are on the precipice of going to a war with any other country. And if President Trump signs an executive order to put any persons of color into camps, what would happen? We gotta think about that. We were very lucky in 2001 that the Muslim Americans were not put into camps. And that was because the Japanese Americans came out and said, no, they fought for that. They fought for their law to say, no, this was wrong and it can't happen again. We won't let it happen again. But with this presidency, we do not know if that will ever stay in effect. These are conversations we need to have. We can't just stay silent and we have to start self-educating. We need to be active in our resistance. And the first step is self-education. 2020 has been a roller coaster of emotions. We are living in a time like no other. And it's crazy to think that we are eight months into this. And it's unfortunate to hear how many deaths in this country just because our president is not taking this seriously. But as unfortunate as this era is, we're also living in a moment of technology where communication and information 
is at our fingertips. We are allowed to talk to anybody around the world with just a few clicks of our fingers. And if we want to know something, we want to study something, we want to look at our past or discover what other people have found, it's right there. And with that amazing power, we have the responsibility to continually seek out information and listen to people. Facts over feelings, people. Facts over feelings. We may think it is okay not to wear a mask, but it is a fact that a mask will help prevent the spread of coronavirus. We may think that climate change is not real because we can't actually feel it or see it, but it is a fact that the earth has gotten hotter and hotter over the past few decades because of human industrialization. That is science. We may think that we know our history, and the fact is, we don't, because we are not being taught true history. With that being said, we are going to continue today's conversation to seek out new information. Let's go back to that small room in Chicago, Illinois, and listen to the stories from the people who were there. I've heard that George's testimony has reminded me that I'm a member of the Chicago Nixon Post, the American Legion, Nixon Post. A group of uh, Chicago Post members attended a dedication of a monument erected at the former site of the Lower Concentration Camp in Arkansas. And this uh, monument dedicated to uh, 32 Nisei who entered the service from these centers, went served overseas with the 442nd, and were killed in action. And their bodies were brought back again, same camp where their parents were still living, incarcerated by the federal government. Now, this sort of thing people don't know. Here's a case where ordinarily, if uh, a soldier is killed overseas, brought back, they'll have a civic uh, ceremony honoring them. In this case, the both our mothers are incarcerated. Nobody took care of these people. Now, how can you repay people like that? Thank you. Uh, may I interject something about our... I volunteered for the uh, armed forces. He was a graduate of the University of California at Berkeley. He had his bachelor's degree in economics and uh, business ed. And when he went into the army, he was in the end of Burma campaign. And he was a college grad. And when he went overseas, he was a mule skinner. But I bet he was the greatest mule skinner they ever had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just to say something. When I was in camp, I was a registered nurse, and I saw all these horrible suicides and mental illness. And my oldest son just died, and he died because he was beaten so badly when he came out of camp. And my little boy who was born in camp, he had thymus gland that was pushing his heart, and I gave him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation just to keep him alive. And now he's an attorney. But you know something? He used to look at his birth certificate and he says, where is this Minidoka, Idaho, where I was born? And I'd say, it was the concentration camp. And he says, you know, Mom, I don't know whether to believe you or not. I've never read it anywhere in the books. And he finally went to law school. He calls me up in the middle of the night. He says, my goodness, you were right all the time. I'm reading Hirabayashi versus the United States government. And he says, the first time I've read anything in print. And he said, that's your old buddy, Gordon Rabashi. You know, and I used to talk to him. And he said, you know, Mom, I don't know whether you're really exaggerating or telling me a big tale or, you know, I just can't believe all this stuff. When it's never been in any of his books. Until he reached law school. That's a long time to go. Thank you, Betty. 
reporter from the Revolutionary Worker newspaper. I just like to follow what the lady said here, though. Also, I also feel that a lot of what's come out makes me ashamed to be a citizen. And I think it's very important, though, what Mary has said, calling out a lot of the racism that exists among white people in this country. I think, though, at the same time, we have to also look at, like, I never knew this either, that these camps even existed while I was in high school, because it was never part of even the history, and I didn't know any Japanese people at that time. And these things have been intentionally, people that have a lot of control of the society, who prints the textbooks, the man said about the tribute, the great American they were part of whipping up war fever also and then supporting the internment of Japanese people. And I would just like to make the point, I think it's very important for this history to come out so that we know what's happened in the past, but we should also make it serve the present. What are they doing now about whipping up hysteria around Iranian people? They tried to uh, whip up attacks against the Iranian people. Isn't that just something to help prepare the groundwork for another like they did in Vietnam, and see that those people were nothing but poops, and that was a reason that we should fight against them. And so I really think that, again, this country is preparing for war, and we should take these history, these lessons of the past, and apply them to the future. Okay, thank you very much. We're certainly all, we all seeing the sense of a mission that we work ahead of us. I wanted to, maybe just two, three hands here, and then I'd like to turn it over to Tina, I think. So could we start with you, and can you give your name? Yeah,西尔哥，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西尔，西
trade for prisoners of war and so forth. That was the idea. Those, maybe someone could be expedite those who would go out and work in uh, non-defense plants, go to college and so forth, join the armed forces, but to find the ones that were disloyal and to segregate them. I don't know, this is someone's opinion. I but there seem to be indications that we were used as hostages. We were used as hostages. This is someone's yeah. opinion, I don't know. No, but the question is not why they did it, but what was the basis in law? Uh, the law was abided by those times. It was, it was just pushed the law to the side. There was yes. no law. There was, there was no law. law. Yes. The law was At that time, when we were incarcerated in the concentration camp, the Constitution wasn't even worth the paper it was written on. In times of war, this country has shown repeatedly will not honor a constitution. In times of war, the president has military powers. He can turn this country entirely into a military state overnight. He has the power to do so. That is written in the constitution. What they did was not justifiable. What has occurred and the end result to all the people here and their families, people that they know, is um, can never be justified in their minds or to anybody in the world. The problem is, how do we motivate them to make some correction for it, to admit it? They refuse to admit it. They know it's wrong, and it's unfair. They admit that they treated the blacks wrong for so many years. They admit that they openly that they um, the American Indians have been mistreated. They'll admit in the wrong little group that the Japanese have been mistreated. <laughs> People that were placed in camps during the war were mistreated, but they will not come out in the open because of political ties, because of social ties, and have the guts to say, yes, we mistreated these people, we owe them an apology. They just flat out refuse to do it. As far as it being related to other people, it is difficult because we as a race pass the stories on by word of mouth. We could assemble just a few people in this room and talk for days about camp stories and things that have happened during the war and since and never repeat the same story twice. But yet we refuse to put it on tape or get it transcribed or put it down on paper so people know. I have not been able to read my mother's testimony yet. My sister has. She was amazed at what she read. I will get my hands on that piece of paper and I will read it. I'm glad that I'm here to hear some of this. I wish more of the younger Japanese were here. I certainly wish more that, that more of the Caucasian people were here so that they can spread the word. I'm glad that the reporters are here because I'm praying that they'll spread this through the papers and get some headlines so that the people know. They don't know. They Thank absolutely do not. We have heard so many stories today. From the sansei who never knew about the camp, to the reporter who says his newspaper would never post it in their publication. Politics has not been on the top of mind of most people, and many people do not want to talk about politics because it is divisive and people are afraid of being wrong and being judged for being ignorant. But we should not judge these people for being ignorant. We can help them by sharing this information. We cannot make them listen, but by getting this message out to them, Maybe we can change their minds. There is no shame in not knowing something, but it is a disappointment to those who refuse to listen to others. For the longest time, I didn't talk about politics. I did vote for Obama, but for many years, that was my extent of politics. 
Even the propositions that I voted for, most of them I didn't know what I was voting on. And that's why it's important to also seek out that information. But when I started to understand how much has been left out of the conversation and how my actions affect other people, even though I may never see those actions take place, I knew I had to make a difference in my life so that I can make a difference in the lives around me, that my vote can help or hurt the people who I love. And going beyond voting, we have to start thinking about these conversations no matter how difficult they are. I do not want to be the troublemaker or someone who always brings up conflict, but I won't stand for homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, xenophobia, or any of the other phobias of the type because it is wrong to hate on people, period. I may not be from the nation of Islam, but that does not give me the right to commit violent crimes against them. I may not be a transgender person. They deserve the same rights that I have as a cis man. I grew up going to church on Sunday, and we were taught to love and respect everybody. But when I started to hear people from that community hate and vote against equal marriage, I had to stand up. Those rights may not affect me, but I have friends and family who it does affect. And it's not any of my business or place to create laws that prevent them from their happiness and love. Every single person in the world deserves their happiness, peace, and freedom. And if I ever come across people who believe they are better people because they live in America, or because they are white, or because they quote unquote worked hard for their privileges, I have no problem standing up to that person and saying, that's not fair. If the system treats us all equally, that would be a different conversation. But the American system does not treat people of color with equal respect and actively creates laws that harm communities of color, sexual orientation, and gender. The Constitution was written for white men with land. Only those people could vote. And those votes affected other people. Women are constantly having to fight for their rights. That is not fair. We should all be treated equally. If the Constitution of the United States says all men are created equal, that idea means all persons are created equal. But when they actually put that into effect, they really said all white men are created equal. That's it. Everybody else? Screw them. That's not what it said. But that's what ended up happening, because everybody else had to fight for those equal rights. Didn't matter what color you were, if you're not still fighting for it today, your people have fought for it previously. No one is free until all of us are free. Now, voting season is really coming to a close right now. Here's your voting tip of the week. If you have your mail-in ballot, you can do your ballot writing at home. Go to Google, learn what you're voting on and how you vote. You can find a voter guide at the nearest ACLU or any of the other nonprofits you might like. You talk to other people about what you're voting on. Really talk to them. Don't just look at the ads. Again, follow the money. Who's paying for those ads? You can't just vote on how many times someone said yes to vote on this or no to vote on that. Understand what you're voting on. You can do it at home, you sign it, seal it, and then you can actually take it to your nearest polling place and drop it off. You can skip the lines altogether. I took my ballot to the polling place and it actually took me longer to get there than to actually vote. It took me 15 minutes to drive there. It took me one minute to drop in my ballot. I didn't stand in line one step. Felt great. So if you have your ballot, take it in, drop it off, skip the lines. We have less than a week left. Get to the polls. I want to thank you again for joining me on this podcast today. I think I finally found my flow and voice. I really appreciate you stumbling with me for the first few episodes. If this podcast resonated with you, please subscribe. Please share this podcast with somebody you know. 
If you have an extra moment, please rate this podcast in your app player. I'd really appreciate that. We need to share and listen to these people so we can get a better understanding of our history. Thanks again for listening. This is Redress and Lo-Fi. My name is David Moria. Power to the people. This episode is brought to you by Strong Asian Lead. Are you an artistic creative who struggles to find representation? Are you tired of being the only Asian in the room? Do you struggle with your Asian identity? Strong Asian Lead is here to help. We understand the bamboo ceiling that you face even if you don't know it's there. We believe that your identity is a powerful tool for creative self-expression. Find out how you can channel your identity into powerful storytelling. Strong Asian Lead. Reimagining Asian American entertainment because Asian is not a genre. Sign up for our newsletter at strongasianlead.com.